Welcome to episode four of Hoco Cast, your local podcast sponsored by the Howard County Library System. We are Baz, Emmy, and Olivia, bringing you local Howard County happenings from good reads to inspiring deeds. I think we've all been experimenting over the course of quarantine, whether in the kitchen, a new music genre, or a hair dye, so we'd like to follow the trend and introduce a new segment to our repertoire, a casual conversation of sorts. We'll be discussing the upcoming online school year as well as representation. Hey everyone, so uh, we're all seniors, right? So let's, you know, take a second, talk about this upcoming school year, a bit about the curriculum, because uh, times are crazy. Mm, yeah. So, so like, I guess, even with like what our school system has decided upon a uh, semester schedule, yeah, four classes um, in the fall and then four in the spring, which um, is re- really interesting, I think personally, because um, obviously since we're online, Oh, we couldn't do what we did previously, which is have all seven classes in one week. Like that was just so much. And I know when we were going into it, I was so worried that they were going to have us do like seven classes and like each day it was gonna be so much. We'd have so much work to do. So personally, I'm happy with the new semester schedule. Um, I, I don't know about you guys, but I think it's really nice. It takes a bit of a load off and lets us focus more and give more effort into each of the specific spots, um, each of the specific classes. Um, personally, I, I don't know if you guys agree with that or not, but, um, that's interesting because I completely disagree. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's, this is going to be a great conversation. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause I mean, for multiple reasons, the first one is, uh, fine arts it's a lot more difficult for those to meet anyway. Um, I'm going to be a magical next year and that online yes. is already, oh, thank you. That online is already going to be difficult. Oh, yeah, but no, no, the I idea bet. that there could be, I could only take it for one semester or there might be a half of a year where I'm not getting like the same sort of fine arts I would be getting is, you know, it's a bit challenging. I'm definitely reorganizing my entire schedule currently because it yeah. used to be you know <laughs> taking two theaters taking one choir this and that and now that's all changed and I'm like yeah. emailing my counselor trying to change my alternates and mm-hmm. so that's the first thing and then the second thing is like APs is going to be a lot more difficult since teachers are having to sort of condense or reconfigure how they're doing yeah. um, their curriculums and so for that, you either don't want to, I know they're trying to put a lot of APs in first semester so that everything will be covered by the test, but that either means that students are getting like a lot of APs first semester and then, you know, second semester will be vastly different or yeah. in the chance that they then mix it up and they do have some APs in second semester, you know, making sure that everything is covered by the exam. I just think that's going to be very difficult to sort of reconfigure yeah. everything in the amount. Yeah, and I can totally see your point of view. The The only thing that, like, I wish there were, like, almost a different sort of way, because, um, y- you know, I totally understand. I'm doing, like, two art classes. At this point, I might be doing an ARL. I have no idea, okay. <laughs> um, because, you know, we don't know anything, and, um, you know, I totally get all of that. I understand all that. And it's definitely a valid concern. And, you know, personally, me as an artist, I actually want, you know, I want to do art for a career. <laughs> and um, I would love to be able to do art, you know, year round, ideally. And, um, but my only problem is, 
I don't think for my own like personal I'm not an online learner at all I, right. I struggled <laughs> so much the last quarter that we had to do that online I'm really not geared towards it I could barely focus on seven classes it was all so much and I almost wish there were a way where they just cut down the schedule almost entirely which I know is literally impossible but um yeah no I, I agree I would love to have things year round but you know at the end of the day I still wouldn't be able to do seven classes on a full school schedule a full in-depth school um proceeds and policies and you know activities I, I couldn't handle that personally as far as my own I guess mental health goes um so while you know, I, I don't exactly love the semester by semester one, that's for sure. Um, it, it, it's definitely more of something that would work for me so that I can focus more on each of the individual ones. Um, right, I get that. Yeah, yeah. It's like, for me, um, I'm taking, I was, I was going to take a lot of science classes this year, right? So I'm taking biotechnology through ARL, but the thing about that is that it's a class that's you know partially classroom and then partially lab so now we can't have any of those labs which is really unfortunate um and then internships as well like i don't i don't even know how that's going to work out because you know i was applying for internships this spring but after the pandemic hit you know there was really little i could do um and so it it's interesting you know i kind of mixed feelings about the yeah. by four schedule and yeah. then about how classes are because you know again for APs if we have APs first semester then we'd have to you know just restudy everything before the test which would be quite a lot for the spring yeah and then mm -hmm. um yeah so it's it's just a lot going on but on the other hand um for some classes you know like math for example uh I actually had a lot of success in the online class because uh it gave us we were able to kind of study on our own and learn on our own. So that was really helpful to me because I could just go at my own pace and highlight the things that I wanted to highlight, which is nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I gosh, like, I, I, I mean, I could never, I'm not a, a math geared learner much at all. Right. So it was absolutely awful for me. <laughs> if I didn't have a teacher to help me out at all. I was lost. I don't even, I did not retain any of the information. So it's interesting to see how different learners uh, react to like different things. Um, so like speak, going into that, like what are some of like the, like, like the pros and cons almost like you've got some people with like, who are, who are geared towards learning online. They like having more of a control over their own um, learning, their own pace, like you were saying. Um, and you know, for someone like me who likes it to be a bit more structured, have a bit more help along the way, just especially for classes that I, you know, struggle in a little bit. Um, it almost, it almost seems like more of a con being online in general. Um, personally. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Oh, sorry. You still got some of the pros though. I mean, like, I like online school and the fact that it gives you more time to yourself, more time to do other things and focus on, you know, outside right. stuff like uh, new hobbies and new sort of ideas and stuff you've kind of always wanted to do, but never really had the time. Mm -hmm. But then again, like you go back to that thing with like ARL, like as a con, that's something that I'm interested in doing like for my career. And I was going to do the um, animation uh, ARL, which nice, requires nice. like heavy equipment that I, I don't have 
access to like a computer that can run Maya or any or or Photoshop, much less the money to pay for the programs like that. Um, and through ARL, you know, it was all there. So like, you've got the cons of like having the resources or not having the resources, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think a lot of the cons come in from people trying to make it exactly like the original school schedule, because there are some things that you just inherently can't do with, like you were saying about the resources. Meanwhile, there is things like, you know, more freedom within the schedule now, especially with the four by four, where it's like, I, you know, I used to be packed, you know, Monday through Friday, maybe I'd have Wednesdays open for clubs. So it was like, I could never join anything new. And now we can sort of like, I feel like time for scheduling those will be a lot more open and presentations and things where teachers are like, oh, well, I don't want my class time taken up. Now it doesn't have to be, you know? Yeah. So I think as long as we have more leeway within that, I think that's where a lot of the pros come in. I just, mm -hmm. you know, people are trying to make it super close to what it originally was, which I know that's funny for me to say, cause I'm the one who doesn't really like the four by four. I'm like, I want to be like it originally was. Um, but like, also just the fact that we're short on time, you know, I think the four by four, if if it was like something that we were working towards in a couple of years, then it could be really good. You know, it works really mm -hmm. well for college students. So why not? Yeah. Students? It's just that we're in a bit of a time crunch and people are trying to switch things over so fast. That right. Yeah. A lot of the difficulties come from. Yeah, mm -hmm. I really like what you brought up also about how people are trying to make it, you know, so close to what classes in the schedule originally were. Cause like, you know, right now we do have some opportunity to try new things which can come into you know, the way classes are structured and how teachers, instead of you know, giving students that really, really detailed step-by-step -step of what they need to do each day, they have more assignments that are due you know, by the end of the week, for example. So students have you know, more, more chance to manage time on their own, um, you know, which really comes in handy, especially when you have you know, so many clubs during the day. So that way you could, you could work on you know, more projects or most of your homework on say Tuesday. So that way you can have everything done by Wednesday and go to this extracurricular you really like. So I think that's, that's a nice thing. And then even you know, keeping things online in some of my classes where we would be doing more hands-on material, we actually got the chance to do you know, online simulations and more projects that were based on the computer. And so that was kind of nice to learn about because we wouldn't have been previously introduced to that kind of material if it hadn't been for schools closing and for us not being able to meet physically. Right. Right. And I'd like to kind of jump off of that a little bit because, um, you know, when you talk about technology, this is almost forcing like the school system and people who maybe not aren't as acquainted with technology to kind of uh, get used to it and find, you know, ways to actually to utilize it to the fullest potential. And especially in a world where we're heading towards um, a future where technology is just integrated in our society a lot more. I think it's really important for people to, um, you know, become fluent in how to use and articulate technology um, and understand it and, you know, get a grasp of it. And perhaps that's another pro of this amount of time. Like, you know, you've got that one teacher who doesn't know how to stop autoplay on the YouTube video, but now they're going to have to learn how to even, you know, it's like, unmute themselves and all these things that you know you'd think people would know but you know they don't and now they're reaching this kind of uh, peak um affluence affluency with like technology and it's probably a good thing considering how much we advance technologically and how we've been advancing and how the world is advancing 
Um, so that's definitely also something to consider. And for someone who, you know, maybe doesn't have access to a computer, this whole idea that um, the school system is going to provide them with a, with a Chromebook if they don't have access right. to a computer, they're going to be able to, you know, have a computer for maybe the first time ever, and they're actually going to be able to mess around with it. Someone might discover that they like messing around with a computer just because of this, because they actually have access to it. Um, so there's some of the more subtle sort of byproducts almost. Yeah, and then I just, I really like, you know, how we can talk about, you know, opportunities as well as some of the things that we'd want to change. And so for this upcoming school year, what are some things about the curriculum that you'd want to change? I mean, I heard a lot about how we'd want to use technology more or give more people access, but what about some of the material or some of the, um, some of the lessons and, and some of the things that teachers are, are giving us in class? Yeah, um, you know, that's a really good point, something to consider. Um, and when you look at classes, like, there's a lot of things like, you know, the school system and the way it's formatted. It, personally, I think there, there should be a lot to be changed for the curriculum. And, you know, they're trying to change it and make it more accessible for, for everyone. But, you know, everyone's a different learner. And I think that's part of the problem is that everyone's a different learner. And you can't expect one system to work for everyone. So, you know, someone may be like absolutely loving online school right now. Like they are having <laughs> right. the time of their lives. They've never been a better learner ever. And you got someone like me on the opposite end of the spectrum who's like hating life right now. Like, oh my gosh, how am I supposed to do any of this? So honestly, what I'd really like to see almost is um, one of the things even that my teacher did is a different learning of like different activities for different learners. And one of the ways my teacher did that last semester was she would have a choice board of things we'd do. And at the beginning of the week, she had a board and there were like six different things that you could do um, to study or six different things that related to whatever unit it was. Um, and really for someone nice. like me, yeah, yeah. For someone like me who's an active doer learner, she had a scavenger hunt, like a little picture scavenger hunt. You would go, she was like, all right, you have to get outside with this one. You'd go outside, you'd take pictures of things that would you find on the scavenger hunt relative to the, um, you know, curriculum or relative to the unit. And I really like that because everything else is like note taking and, oh, it was watching videos, like hour long videos and taking notes. And I'm not that kind of learner. So having that option is really nice. And I think I'd really like to see more teachers do that so that for the people who love taking notes are like, oh, yes, note taking. And they can have their notes. And then for the people like me who are like, yes, I get to do something. I have an excuse to go outside. You know, they can have that option too personally. Yeah, I think a lot of it comes from giving not only students, but teachers a lot more choice. You know, I know teachers are sort of often confined to their curriculums, or they just see it as their job to teach the curriculum and nothing else. And so I hope this year we're shifting away from that. You know, I know with like the English literary canon, so often it's like, well, why don't we read more diverse books by more diverse authors? And the teachers are like, well, my hands are tied. I'm not allowed to do it. So I think yeah. that allowing teachers more choice in how they're allowed to teach and what they're allowed to teach so then they can bring that forward to the students so that they can learn the best way that they can. Yeah, it's, no, it's, no, that's, it's so that's, that's really nice. And, yeah. you know, for, for classes like English and, and math even, you know, you have students who come into school and they hear you have to do this this way uh, using this set of tools and learn about these people and that's it. 
And so, you know, it can be so constricting for, for so many students who want to say, you know, why can't I do it this way? You know, like you have the kids in math class who solve the problem a different way. And instead of, you know, being encouraged to keep going and, and finding their own way to do something, they're told they have to do it the way that's in the textbook. Right. And so, you know, just being told that over and over in so many different classes really just cancels out so many students with these great ideas and these aspirations that, you know, they, they're told they can't follow. And right. So, it's very, sorry, it's sorry to cut you yeah, off. Go it's ahead. discouraging. Um, oh, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, I'd love to just give students more freedom to, to see more, see more of the world, really, in, in all yeah. classes. Uh, I think that would really help students not only have a more, you know, diverse set of learning, uh, but also like school more. So yeah. as surprising and shocking as it is. <laughs> yeah, especially in this day and age when like what we should be doing is promoting to our generations and our future, like our youth who are end up to be themselves and, you know, to right. find their own path in life, be a trailblazer. Um, so like, like you were saying, for those kids who have a different um, approach but end up getting the same solution, we should be praising that and be like, wow, can, like, great job. You found a different way to solve the problem that works. Um, and that might be helpful for someone else. Like, oh my gosh, I cannot tell you the amount of times I've been in math class and, um, I, you know, I, I'm struggling with what the teacher told me to do. And some kid next to me found some like shortcut, easier-ish way where they made it make a whole lot more sense. And like, oh, well, she's over, she's over complicating it. You know, you just got to do this and do this. And I'm like, oh my God, that's, that's it. That's literally <laughs> that's great. it. It is great. Yeah. And like you have that moment and it obviously, it honestly invigorates you a little bit. And, you know, for someone like me who doesn't really like math, if I have a strategy that works, that makes sense in my mind, that kind of clicks and, um, you know, it makes me want to do the math work more, um, which I think is another benefit to in-school learning and a bit of a con of um, online learning because you can't collaborate with your students in class as much. Right. Um, because, you know, I, I can't just look at the person sitting next to me and be like, you're doing it so quickly. I, I don't understand. Can you help me? Because, you know, sometimes it's easier to just turn to a fellow student than a teacher um, for help and, um, you know, trying to understand. It's easier to be like, you seem to know what you're doing. I can't follow what the teacher's doing either. So can you help me out here? Um, and I, I think I, that's one of the biggest cons because I'm a very collaborative worker when it comes to figuring out solutions to problems. Um, and I really think that's gonna be something that's gonna be hard to replicate in an online setting. Now that you've heard some of our thoughts, how about a few tidbits from the people who inspire us? Next, we'll be sharing our favorite quotes and why they matter to us. The quote that I will be reviewing is a fun one. I am the Monet of farce. I paint with nonsense by Uba Butler. I think as people, we are all striving for our own creativity and originality. And I find a lot of my own personal creativity through writing and acting, often in situations of high exaggeration as occurs in a farce comedy. To relate this type of creativity to that of Monet's skill in painting, clearly paints the picture that any type of skill in fine art can be a beautiful image to entertain, even if it's utter nonsense. And that idea makes me want to be spontaneous in my life and in my work, 
and inspires me to hone my craft further to be as non-traditional in my life as I see fit. The quote I'll be recommending is, Everybody wants happiness, nobody wants pain, but you can't have a rainbow without a little rain. This quote was introduced to me by a friend, and has always held a special place in my heart as a reminder that even when times are tough, it'll pay off in the end. You can always find success after hardship, just as one finds a rainbow after rain. One of my favorite quotes is guidance given by American artist Andre de Shields. He said, 1. Surround yourself with people whose eyes light up when they see you coming. 2. Slowly is the fastest way to get to where you want to be. And 3. The top of one mountain is the bottom of the next, so keep climbing. This is truly a wonderful way to live life, and I value this quote for the minute lesson in each word. In the theme of revolution, the HokoCast team interviewed local changemaker Ms. Candace Dodson-Reed about her impact on Howard County, the current social justice movement, and how we can all support and stand up for one another. Candace Dodson-Reed serves as the Chief of Staff and Executive Director of the Office of Equity and Inclusion at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, UMBC. Prior to her appointment in 2018, Candace was the AVP of Communications and Public Affairs at UMBC, a vice president at the Greater Baltimore Committee, and for almost eight years served as the deputy chief of staff for Howard County Government. In 2012, Candace founded the African American Community Roundtable of Howard County, an umbrella group that connects members of the local Black community. Candace also co hosts a podcast event called Elevate Maryland. Candace is an appointed commissioner on U.S. Commission for Civil Rights Maryland Advisory Committee, serves on the Maryland League of Conservation Voters Board of Directors, and as Vice Chair of the Board of Directors for the Downtown Columbia Arts and Culture Commission. Candace graduated from UMBC with a B.A. in English and received her graduate degree from the, the Madonna School of Business at Georgetown University. She also graduated from the Institute for Educational Management at the Harvard University Graduate School of Education. In March of 2020, she was named the Maryland Top 100 Woman by the Daily Record. Candace is a very proud mother of a college junior. Hello, thank you for joining us. Sure, thank you so much for having me. I love doing these kind of things, particularly with students, so I really appreciate it. Oh, of course. So if you don't mind, I'm just going to jump right in. First sure. question we have. All right. So growing up, were you always interested in social justice and helping your community? Yeah, I love that question. Um, and I don't, I don't know if folks listen to Elevate Maryland podcast, but we usually start off asking folks to tell us their story because it shows um, how, it, uh, how their stories and how they grew up shape the work that they do now. And mine is no different. Um, so I'll tell you a little bit about my story in, in growing up in Howard County and about my parents. Um, my mother uh, grew up uh, what you would considered to be very wealthy. Um, and my father grew up what you would consider to be very, very, very poor. He's from West Virginia um, in a coal mining town called um, Bluefield, West Virginia. And my mother is from Washington, DC. And so my brother and I had sort of an interesting um, and wonderful and rich childhood and perspective because though my mom grew up in different circumstances than my dad, um, they always drilled down in us and instilled in us that, um, that we live by our values and um, and my dad marched with King and um, and certainly um, was part of the civil rights movement and so 
at a very young age, I became involved in the NAACP um, as a first stop. My parents gave more to like the national organizations that were focused on civil rights and education issues. And so that was kind of my path when I was young. Um, it's interesting, I just read a book about, and this is the library, so I'm gonna talk about books too, but I just read a book by Cecilia right, Munoz. <laughs> Good. Um, by Cecilia Munoz, um, who is, was one of the highest ranking Latinx folks in the Obama administration. And her book is called More Than Ready. And she talked about like, you know, the values that she grew up with and how that shaped how she chose to lead as she got older. And I have a similar story, obviously, with, you know, growing up with the parents that I had and um, again, got involved in, in the civil rights movement or civil rights related things at, at a very young age. And that's continued throughout the years. Um, I um, worked, um, it's so funny, I was talking with someone recently about sort of my Howard County experience and I worked at Columbia Association, I worked at Columbia Foundation, and I've also worked at Howard County Government. And I felt it so important to be able to give back in a thoughtful way to the community that I was raised in. And, you know, my parents came here because of Rouse. Um, and, and that was my sort of giving back. I can actually remember, and I'll tell one more quick story, um, the way that I, that I came to Columbia Association is I wrote a letter to then President Pat Kennedy and I said, I don't know if you have a position there for me, but Columbia has done so much for me. And um, now that I'm an adult, I'd love to work there and work on some of the, uh, the issues and challenges because we have them, but also some of the opportunities that we have to make this a more inclusive community. Um, and he hired me and so it worked. Um, and so that's a, a little bit about my, uh, my story and my activism, which has continued for years. Yeah, thank you. That is, that is truly incredible. And so speaking on giving back and making that impact, could you tell us about Elevate Maryland, why and when you founded it and what exactly you do? Sure, yes, Elevate Maryland is uh, the podcast that I co-host with Tom Cole. And we originally founded it because we wanted to amplify underrepresented voices and talk about really challenging issues in our state and beyond, in our community and beyond, and to, to really look at solutions to those big challenges. And so we can talk about education and you know, the gap, and we can grapple with health disparities, and we can talk about housing issues um, and how that affects um, all of our community and why that affects all of our community. And so we wanted to make sure that we not only touched on those issues and also elevated folks who are working on those important issues, um, but also to present solutions. So we've had folks like John King on there, who's the former education secretary in the United States to talk about the gaps that persist in education, for example, and what we need to do to address those gaps. We had a professor from UNBC come on, Sean Bediaco, who talked about health disparities, particularly as it related to COVID, but it's not new, right? COVID is is, um, is showing us that these disparities have been there all along, but it's really highlighting them. Um, and he came on and talked about why it's important to understand the history and then also what we need to do to address the health disparities. And so, you know, really wanting to look at big challenges in our region, really wanting to lift underrepresented uh, voices in our community. We had youth on there. Olivia, you were on there talking about- <laughs> I was, <your> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a great experience. I'm glad you enjoyed it. You were excellent. And, you know, hearing from from young folks about these issues um, and about the challenges that they're grapple, grappling with and understanding their perspective. And so, you know, really it was about elevating voices and giving voice to folks who may not always have voice and solutions. Um, I do want to say one quick thing before. Um, of course. Yeah. So. 
and I know we're going to talk a little bit about the African-American Community Roundtable, but even before the African-American Community Roundtable, I founded something called 2545, which was a giving circle at um, the Columbia Foundation of Howard County. I'm sorry, the Community Foundation of Howard County, which is now called the Columbia Foundation. And it was really important for me at that time to, and 2545 is, was the age range, right? To, to okay. get people from ages 25 to 45 to really think about how to give back to their community with their time and their money. And so I really loved working with, uh, with the folks at Columbia Foundation on that. And you know, one of the things that we did, if you talk about like sort of my social justice activism work, um, we held a beer summit back after, um, after President Obama held a beer summit at the White House when there was um, you know, a story about racial tension in the country. Um, right, after right. Gates was arrested at his house, yeah. Um, and, you know, and started talking then about um, the importance of board diversity, the importance of why um, the leader of an organization should reflect the community that, that it represents and, and the importance of, of inclusion and, and uh, equity work at that time. So um, I just wanted to highlight that as, as another, you know, way of sort of um, how you can become active in your community and how I chose to do it um, as I looked at these issues that we have. Yeah, thank you for that. Sure. Yeah, I mean, you kind of gave us um, sort of that lead and you're mentioning about the African American Community Roundtable, um, which segues nicely into our, into our next question for you. Uh, what has been the impact of the African American Community Roundtable in Howard County? And would you recommend more programs like this, especially now? Sure, the answer is yes, and I hope our impact has been strong. I founded that back in 2012 with um, my friend Regina Clay. And the reason why we originally founded it was twofold. One was um, at the time, County Executive Allman had put together a task force to look at um, the Board of Education and the lack of diversity on the Board of Education. Um, right. And there were proposals that came out related to, um, and now we have it, but <laughs> voting by district so that we could make sure that there was true representation throughout County. Yeah. And I went to, the, yeah, so I went to the first meeting and, um, I did not see any black people. <laughs> and I was like, what? you know, and I worked in the administration at the time. And I was like, how can we make sure that we as a community come together and advocate for the things that are important to, um, to black folks in Howard County, to be frank. And, um, and, so, and so the African American Community Roundtable was founded after that. The other issue that I, I wanted to address was, you know, how do we best support and um, and find and like build a pipeline for diverse representation with our elected officials. And so there was a twofold um, reason why I started the roundtable um, with Regina. And we, we've done a lot of cool things. Um, I am no longer the president. I, um, I have stepped down from that role and, um, and Larry Walker is the president, but we had a $150,000 grant with Horizon Foundation, for example, to work on health disparities. They're now actually working with Horizon on, um, on their racial justice work, which is great. Mm -hmm. um, we did um, community uh, forums with the Howard County Public Schools with the superintendents to talk about the education gap and to talk about why black students are uh, suspended at a higher rate than other students and to talk about, you know, these big challenges again. I mean, maybe that's yeah. like the theme is that I'm always looking at these big challenges and how we can really work on them. Um, yeah. and so we did that as well. And so you know, perhaps there can be more, I'd love to see more youth-led um, organizations pop yeah, up or to partner, yeah, to partner with more youth-led organizations. I think there's, there's definitely space for that. 
Um, and I'm excited about the potential given where I'm seeing, you know, the, the persistent focus on how we need to do things better, particularly from our youth. Right. And, you know, at, I always say, and I say this at work all the time is, you know, when there's conflict and when there are challenges and when there are troubles, let's, you know, reflect on them and really think about what it means because there is trauma that's been caused. And then what can we do? Right. Yeah. So it's both. Oh, yeah. It's like the, the restorative work and let's have these conversations and then the action. And so yeah, all up through there. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So going on about like things that you can do in your community and like taking that action, how can Howard County citizens of all races be allies and supporters for the Black Lives Matter movement? Yeah, I love that question. Um, so, so the first thing I want to say is that I think um, I think statements and gestures and removing of monuments, that kind of stuff, protests, rallies are important. Um, I also think the end what piece is equally as important. Yeah. And the so follow the follow through. Yeah. So I love the, I went to the Black Lives Matter rally. Um, I, I, time is late escaping me. So I don't know, <laughs> a month ago or was that like, yeah. two months? I don't even whenever that was, the youth-led rally, um, and was so, I actually started to cry, and my daughter was like, why are you crying, and I was like, this is beautiful, like, this is what I want to see, like, this is what you want to see in your community, this level of activism, and I've seen, I saw people there who, um, I know, actually, been as many people who I know, and I love that that happened, and I love that people attended that, and now what? Right. And so what are you doing now? How are you looking at programs um, at your organizations? How are you looking at initiatives? How are we supporting these young people? I put something on Twitter that said something like, don't let these young folks activism be in vain adults. Like, right. how do we now look at the, the look at systemic racism and look at the issues that have been part of the fabric of our country for 400 years? and really look at policies and procedures and initiatives and programs, excuse me, <laughs> that address those issues. Um, and then the other piece of it is look at your leadership, look at your boards, look at your commissions. Are commissions, are they reflective of the broad diversity in our community? And we really have broad diversity. And so, yeah. um, so that's what I would say. Right. And I hope you don't mind if I just jump in and add in a little mini kind of follow-up question that isn't on the original a couple of I questions. What are some like things that people can do to help with that follow through? Um, you know, that allies and other races can help to just follow through and in general, what is some of those examples of follow through? Yeah. So I think that's a great question. You know, there, there are public meetings where um, we're discussion, discussing important issues uh, related to systemic racism, right? And so I would love to see students show up at board of ed meetings and let their voice be heard and, and testify and talk about either your experience, if you have a lived experience as a person of color in, in the school system or in our county, or talk about why it's important for you to be an ally, right? Show up yeah. in those kinds of meetings. There's public hearings with um, Howard County government, for example. Sign up and testify and let your voice be heard there. Um, the biggest thing, and not you all are too young to do this, but like 18 and up, vote. <laughs> vote. Uh -huh. Voting is super important. It is so important. Vote. Get your parents to vote if you can't vote yet. You know, um, It will be challenging this year given the, the pandemic, but Mm -hmm. um, but that's the biggest thing that I think we can do is vote and encourage those who are on the edge about voting to actually vote. Right. Um, yeah, that's so important. 
Yeah, so those are some examples of, of getting involved. And then, you know, like call people like me. Like I'm, I would love to talk about what we can do to make change in our community or to continue to make change um, in, in our community. And as John Lewis says, let's get in some good trouble, right? Like what do we need to do to, to get in some good trouble? I'm not a big fan of the, I, I know I said I went to the Black Lives Matter protest and actually the first protest I went to was after I had my daughter in 2000. I went to the Million Moms March million moms yeah the million moms march um i don't really love big crowds like that i do not love it at all especially especially don't love it right now with COVID. yeah right now it's a <laughs> yeah, different climate not, right exactly but that doesn't mean we can't use our voice and doesn't mean we can't yeah. use you know pet take it to pen and paper and email they're they're doing um you know you can testify now virtually and so let's make some good trouble like call me <laughs> let's figure it out all right all right, and you've mentioned a lot about supporting youth activism. So I was wondering, what advice do you have for teens on speaking up and participating in the work to solve the issues that they're so passionate about? Yeah, um, so I'm gonna use this quote that, um, that my strategy professor at business school said, and he wasn't necessarily talking about this, but it's a good one. He mm -hmm. said, stand up, but don't stand alone, right? And he said, he said, your voice is more powerful. And we were taught, we were grappling with like a Harvard business case. It was like not even related to this, but it's still, in my opinion, does relate to this work. Find those who are passionate about the issues that you're passionate about and reach out and connect with them and figure out a meaningful, thoughtful way on how you advocate for the, what you're passionate about. There are people out there, right, that, that, are, that are sort of grappling with these same challenges and wanting to lift their voices. And so as young folks, I always encourage, whether it be the college students on my campus or, or young folks like you all, or even my daughter, is find people who are passionate about the same issues that you're passionate about and work together to address those issues. And I think that's the first step, really. And then, yes, all of the hearings, all of the board meetings, all of the government hearings, we, folks should hear from you all. All right, thank you. And finally, to close, since this is a library podcast, we have to ask about summer book recommendations. I know you've already mentioned one, if you'd like to go further into that, or if there's anything else you've been reading or would recommend to our listeners, we'd love to hear it. Sure. Um, I will make some recommendations. And then if you don't mind, I'd also like to just read something um, that came from the New York Times article that John Lewis penned. Um, that he wanted to come out right uh, on the day of his funeral or after he died. And I do want to read a little piece from that um, about advocating for what you believe in. Um, but before I do, yes, let's get into books. So uh, Cecilia Munoz, More Than Ready, um, it's a story about how, uh, it's not a story, it's a book about um, women of color using their voices to stand up in organizations, whether it be corporate uh, organizations or, or whether it be private sector, public sector, nonprofits, whatever. And she talks a lot in there about sort of her upbringing and, and how she got to the point where she could, you know, she even tells a story about, you know, challenging something that President Obama was thinking, um, mm -hmm. and how she got to the point where she could raise her voice um, and really give her perspective as a Latinx woman. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I love that book. She also talks a little bit about imposter syndrome, which is something that um, that I had at one point is like, you know, what do I, what am I doing here? How is my voice 
being the leading voice on an issue? How am I, you know, the chief of staff at UMBC? Do I belong in this space? And having that sort of feeling like maybe I don't belong, maybe I'm not smart enough, maybe I'm not good enough. And she talks a lot about that. And, you know, she actually grappled with that as well and some strategies to get past that. And basically she says, we are good enough. <laughs> like we are, we are, we're good enough. Um, I'm also reading uh, Ibram Kendi's How to Be Anti-Racist. Um, that is a recommendation. Like, I feel like everyone should be reading that. I'm actually listening to it um, as I walk every day. Amazing book. Uh, I'm reading, I just started, Brené Brown's The Gifts of Imperfection. Excellent book. Um, that's sort of a self-reflection book. And since we're all home right now, it's a good time to reflect. Um, and then two pieces I, that are not books. One is John Lewis's entire New York Times piece. I think everyone needs to read that. The second is President, President Obama's eulogy from today. Important, important, important read. And so I hope folks read that. And because this is a podcast, can I give a couple of podcast recommendations as well? Of course, totally. Right. So one is um, Gangster Capitalism. Um, it is a very good podcast. The last one is about um, the higher ed scandal, how folks were paying for their students to, um, you know, paying for someone to ha take the SAT for them or the, uh, the GRE in some cases and paying these obnoxious amounts of money to get their kids into colleges. Very good, very good listen. 1619 um, is an excellent podcast. And I, I actually tweeted something the other day that said that should be recommended listening and reading for every single solitary student in the public school system. Talks about the history of slavery and, um, and much more. And I won't give a ton of it away, but it's good. Um, I also listened to Pod Save America, uh, which is a great political podcast um, that talks a little bit about history, uh, but mostly about present and modern day uh, politics. Fascinating listen. And then The Daily, which is the New York Times um, podcast, so, so that I can catch up on, you know, everything that uh, is um, interesting in the world right now. Um, so those are my recommendations for books and podcasts. All right. Thank you for sharing those. Sure, of course. And so if, if it's okay, I'd like to read this quote, because I think it really sums up how I feel about um, about where we can go from here as a community, whether it be Howard County, as a country, as the state of Maryland, as like people who really care about the challenges that we're facing right now as a country, uh, whether it be related to our democracy or COVID-19 or leadership or whatever. And the quote is, and this is what John Lewis wrote, ordinary people with extraordinary vision can redeem the soul of America by getting in what I call good trouble, necessary trouble. Voting and participating in the democratic process are key. The vote is the most powerful nonviolent change agent you have in a democratic society. You must use it because it is not guaranteed, you lose it. And he ended with, when historians pick up their pens to write the story of the 21st century, let them say that it was your generation, talking about you all, who laid down the heavy burdens of hate at last and that peace finally triumphed over violence, aggression, and war. So I say to you, walk with the wind, brothers and sisters, and let the spirit of peace and the power of everlasting love be your guide. And I, it almost brings me to tears. I mean, that's, that's what he means by good trouble. And, um, and I think um, I'm inspired by you all and I'm inspired by you know, this next generation because I think, um, I think you all see things a little bit differently than even my generation and certainly generations previous. 
And I really think you all will change the world with your activism and by using your voice. And so I appreciate you having me on here and happy to talk anytime about how we can get into some good trouble. All right, well, thank you so much for sharing with us. Uh, it has been great talking to you. Sure, of course. Thank, thank you, you so much. Yes, okay. thank you so much. You've really sure. given us a lot to think about. So yeah. incredibly appreciate it. I hope our listeners do too. Good. At the end is just so powerful, especially for, you know, youth in a generation where so much is going on. This climate is just crazy to navigate. Um, yeah. But using our voices and making sure that we're standing up for everyone and making sure everyone's voice is heard is so important. Yeah, and really exactly. think about, I think that's such a good point, and really think about these big issues, right? And, you know, it can seem overwhelming at times, um, and so maybe, you know, focus on a couple at a time, but um, but but we re we're really, the, the old people like me are really relying on you all to to help us change, right? To help us really look in the mirror as a country and figure out how we can do better. I can remember after the multiple uh, school shootings and the Parkland kids came together to stand up and say enough, right? I think that's happening now. And I think, um, you know, after the murder of George Floyd, um, you know, there have been many incidents. That's not the first incident of police brutality. But for whatever reason, where we are as a country right now, I think we are starting to look in the mirror and it's led by you all's generation. And you all are saying enough. And so enough with the gun violence, enough with the racism, enough with the all of the isms, right? Enough with not being an inclusive community that's looking out for everyone. And let's start to break down those barriers or continue to break down those barriers because some work has been done to make sure that this country is the best country for everyone, that this Howard County community is the best community for everyone. And so again, I'm inspired by you all and thank you very much for doing this. Revolution can be internal or external, intimate or widespread, and is paramount for change. The stories that follow focus on a protagonist whose ideology, way of life, or world itself are shaken up, and how that protagonist chooses to deal with the aftermath. My pick centers a bit closer to revelation than revolution, but I'd recommend it all the same. Lily, A Portrait of the First Sex Change by Niels Hoyer, is a book that centers on an account of the life of Lily Elp, following her manuscripts and letters. Lily Elb was one of the first transgender women to fully undergo sexual reassignment surgery, with her social transition occurring in the late 1920s. As the idea of being transgender becomes more widely accepted in the present times, it is interesting to see how there are still many parallels to Lily's life, whether it be found in the need to reevaluate what sexuality someone identifies as, having to identify, having to decide how much risk makes transitioning still worth it, and of course, working against the backlash of others. Women like Lily in the early 1900s, working through the greatly experimental surgeries to transition, helped pave the path for modern transitioning today medically, as well as socially as the path to equality between trans and cis people continues to be formed. Lily is a fascinating read and one I'd wholly recommend. The book I want to highlight is Patron Saints of Nothing by Randy Rabay. The story follows Jay Reguero, whose plans consist mainly of finishing off his senior year, playing video games, and attending University of Michigan in the fall. However, when he discovers his cousin is murdered as part of the Philippine War on Drugs, he travels around the world to find the truth. 
Jay sets out searching for an antagonist, a clear reason why his cousin was targeted. But as he delves deeper into what happened, the foundations of his investigation and everything he thought he knew about his family is shattered. In examining the pieces, Jay comes face to face with the many sides of his cousin and his own role in the catastrophe. Riveting and lyrical, this is a book that educates and moves you. Rather than a book, I'm going to recommend an animated television show called Avatar The Last Airbender. In a world divided by the elemental power some people hold, the Fire Nation has reigned tyranny over the land, disturbing the harmony and upsetting the balance. Under an oppressive rule, everyone seeks freedom from the Fire Nation, but only the Avatar, the master of all four elements, is powerful enough to face the Fire Lord and end his rule. Unfortunately, when the world needed him most, he was gone, until one of our main characters, Katara, and her brother Sokka find him trapped in a giant iceberg and their journey begins. Join the Avatar on his journey to train to face the Fire Lord, all while uniting the other nations and gathering an army to restore balance and harmony to the land, just as it used to be. Thanks for listening to HokoCast. We know that in these turbulent times, it can be all too easy to look for an escape or just a way through, but we have to continue having conversations in order to understand and ultimately find solutions. So contemplate, educate, and reach out. We're one step closer to a future fit for all of us.